this is Meet the Writers. I'm Georgina Godwin. My guest today is a British novelist known for his radical reimagining of the historical form in queer historical fiction. He's the author of five novels, the third of which, The Intoxicating Mr Lavelle, was shortlisted for the Polari Prize for LGBTQ plus fiction. The Times listed his 2021 novel, The Dangerous Kingdom of Love, in their best historical fiction list. And his latest book has, they said, confirmed him as being one of the most original voices in historical fiction today. His latest book is Radical Love. It explores the themes of desire, obsession and survival within his richly imagined yet brutally depicted world of Regency England. Neil Blackmore, welcome to Meet the Writers. Hello. This is such a lovely book and it's all a true story. Yeah. Before we get into it, I want to find out about your true story. Okay. Where are you from? I'm from South Wales originally. That's where I grew up and have lived in London most of my adult life. And how did you become a writer? I actually had a job which I figured out how to do by about lunchtime. And I was <laughs> sitting there. This was back in the days of Tetris and Solitaire. There was no internet readily available. And so I literally just thought, I have to fill my afternoons in this job. And that's how I wrote my first novel, was I wrote my first novel in the afternoons at work. And um, what was the job? Oh, God, just some job in a university. Just one of those jobs you do when you first arrive in London. And it was just, that's literally how I had no great ambitions as a child to be a novelist or anything. You know, I'm from a part of the country where People don't know novelists, don't know how to become novelists. And so it's sort of, it was just some completely random thing. I thought, oh, I'll do this. And that's how it started. Mm, Because you studied history. Yeah. uh, Yeah. At Leeds. And that led you to what? The Italian Renaissance. Kind of, I guess so. Yeah. It's like, so Renaissance was always like my sort of interest of my area of study at university. Yeah. The book I mentioned at the top that was shortlisted for the Polari Prize is The Intoxicating Mr Lavelle. Now, that's all set around Italian Renaissance? Uh, Yeah, so it's set around, it's actually set in the 18th century, but in the 18th century there was a great fashion for young people of quality to go off to Italy to look at the great wonders of the Renaissance. And so it was just a really interesting way to poke a bit of dark fun at people's intellectual pretensions. Because usually it was sort of supposed... You're supposed to go there to learn about Petrarch and Boccaccio and things like that. And really, it was just a sort of travelling Bullingdon club, you know, (laughs) (laughs) where people were just kind of blind drunk for two years. Uh, uh, There's loads of hilarious stories of people having to be, well, maybe not hilarious, but people having to be rescued by their parents because they ran out of money in Bologna and things like that. It was kind of a club 1830 for 18th century aristocrats. (laughs) (laughs) And you're very interested, obviously, in the queer history aspect. Yeah, definitely. And so was that very prevalent amongst that set? then? I'm not really. I mean, I think the modern concept of homosexuality is a 19th century construct. So people before 1870 wouldn't even have thought of themselves as homosexual in a sense of in any kind of binary way, Mm. you know, which is a fascinating thing in and of itself, you know. So really, it's more what was really interesting when I was doing the research for that novel was how Anglo-Saxon British moral superiority or moral purity saw these places as where the heat and the febrile nature of life grabbed you and it was actually one of the things that parents were really concerned about when they sent their kids off would they be off having all these affairs with men or women. Mm. So when did the way that some people think about homosexuality now become enshrined in in society? Yeah, it's interesting. So it's sort of, I think really it's a 19th century thing and probably with the emergence of things like psychoanalysis. I think it was 1870-ish that the first time anyone ever described it as a binary sexual identity, which is really, I mean, as a gay man, most gay men I know 
regardless of their own sexual histories, would actually consider themselves to be gay as a monolithic sort of thing. And lots of straight people consider themselves to be straight as a monolithic thing. It's really interesting when you go back to that, sexual behaviour is much less to do with your identity or some kind of authenticity as to do with moral behaviour or moral failure or more, you know, that, that sort of thing. And definitely when I was writing Radical Love, you see that a lot, that kind of gayness or bisexuality or whatever was just this trap that anyone could fall into. So it's just a really interesting thing to look at in the past. Yeah, I mean, I'm interested to see if there is a moment, is there a switch where we go from a society that sleeps with anybody they like and it doesn't judge anyone for that to being absolutely morally hidebound? I think it's not that they didn't morally judge them for doing it. If they did morally judge them for doing it, it's just it wasn't seen as a fixed part of your identity, your sexual right. identity. So it was seen as a thing. I know that, for example, the Victorian, one of the hilarious things I read in some research I did was about Victorian parents, more American parents at the time, were absolutely obsessed with the sin of onanism. And so to get around this, they would make sure that teenage boys slept together in a bed. <laughs> so you'd have two 15-year-old boys sleeping together in bed and you know, kind of was like, so that was their solution yeah. to avoid. <laughs> Not allowed to do it yourself, but you can do it to someone else. Yeah. So it's just, um, it's, just, it's just really, I found it really fascinating going back into the past and seeing how people's sexual identities and sexual moralities can be so different. You know, the past is a foreign country. Yeah, well, speaking of a foreign country, yeah. your second book, just incredibly well in Germany. Why was that? Oh, God, I don't know. It's just the mystery of publishing. It's why does something work and something doesn't work? It's just, I think publishing is just like a one-arm. There are really great people who work in it and they put lots of thought into stuff, but I think everyone agrees that's just a mystery why something takes off and why it doesn't, you know, with the odd exception of something that's really obviously going to be a hit all along. Who knows? It's sometimes something's just in the air and it, it starts to gather its own momentum. Yeah. So, I mean, have you got a big German following? You have German fan clubs? Uh, it was a while ago. So, <laughs> I'm, unfortunately, my German following have deserted me, I think. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> now, what's really odd here, looking at your work, so you have Soho Blues that comes out in 1998. Yeah. Then you have this book, Split My Heart, which is also in German, Der Himmel über Damascus, <laughs> in 1999. Then there's 20 years. Yeah before you write another book. Yeah. What's going on? I just didn't really enjoy the process very much and I just stopped. This kind of discussion I have of myself all the time is like, how much do I actually really enjoy being a novelist and how much do I... It's, I don't want to sound ungrateful because I've had a lot of opportunity, but this kind of narrative that goes on in me is that sort of, is this really what I want to do with my life? Which is kind of not how a lot of people think of novelists, you know. For a lot of people, it's their dream and that's amazing. So I just stopped and it was actually... I think it was the best thing to do at the time. So I appreciate it more now because I had that period of not doing it and doing other things. Yeah. What other things? What did you do? Oh, God, I did all sorts of things. I just like, my main thing was I was a subtitler, a film subtitler. That was the main thing I did. But I did all sorts of things. I fit my way into all kinds of jobs <laughs> and <laughs> all kind of career changes. I'm just sort of, it's, I mean, which is great for a novelist. Professional fibbing is like kind of what a novelist does, you know. So <laughs> I think it probably says something about me, but, you know. <laughs> then you roar back with this book, The Intoxicating Mr. Lavelle, and that's closely followed a couple of years later by The Dangerous Kingdom of Love. Tell yeah. me about that. So The Dangerous Kingdom of Love is a reimagining of the court atmosphere of James the First and Sixth, and it's told through the point of view of the politician, philosopher, inventor of modern science, Francis Bacon, who is widely 
believed to have been what we would now call gay. And James I himself obviously is well known for his romantic or intense relationships with young, with mysteriously attractive young men. And so I just sort of thought, well, this is great for me. You know, this is just absolutely what I want to do. And particularly because there's a lot of traditional historical writing around James is like, Oh, well, maybe they were just good friends. And, you know, it's like, and so it's yeah. absolutely grist to my meal. I just want to tear all that apart, really, and yeah. just make this big, great gay novel about this. And what was also really interesting was some of the women involved in the book are very dismissed by history. And so that was great, too. So like kind of James's wife, Anne of Denmark, who's often very dismissed, you kind of you were able to reimagine those characters. So it was just fantastic fun. I also used to work in education for a while, close to sort of quite high-powered people, and it just was a really fascinating glimpse on the brutality of power and how when it's your time to die, it's your time to die in power. And so it was, all of that just came together fantastically in that book. And do you think that the nature of power has changed since then? I think the nature of power has changed since then in Western democracies because you can't be dragged off to your death at the capricious whim of the king. Mm. I think the game of power is the same. When it's your time to go, it's your time to go and there's not much you can do about it and all your all your machinations are over. So I think without too many spoilers about that book, that's kind of the path that Francis Bacon is travelling. And I think when you're somebody who is gay or when you're a woman or you know, look at the various intelligent wives of Henry VIII, when you're in that position, it's even a more perilous path where you're, the traps are everywhere. And so... This is the thing I learned when dealing with people who, in a small world, which was education, had a lot of power. It's an absolutely brutal game. Everyone knows that one day the knife might come for them. And so it's just... The traps are everywhere still, absolutely, aren't they? Yeah. And possibly even more with, with social media. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Because now everyone has a knife to stab you. <laughs> <laughs> there are very famous writers who we can imagine who I'm talking about who have absolutely changed how the world sees them because they were unable to just not get stabbed on Twitter. You know, it's yeah. like metaphorically stabbed on Twitter. And it's like sort of, I mean, that's that's almost French Revolution stuff where the ordinary person now has a say too. You know? mm -hmm. Let's talk about radical love. As I said, it's based on a true story. It's set in London in 1809. Tell me how you first came across the story of John Church. So many years ago, I had read a book, an amazing book by an academic called Richter Norton, which was called Mother Claps Molly House, which was about, he basically tracked the rise of the first gay subculture in London in the 18th century, which really was a project of very rapid urbanisation. And all of a sudden, these young men and women were arriving from the country where they would have lived one kind of life and suddenly were just all funneled into this kind of madly growing city. And so I'd read this book a long time before and I knew elsewhere the story of John Church very, very simply as the first person who ever practiced gay marriage, or was recorded of practiced same-sex marriage in this country in a completely secret, illegal way, and that his connection to the Via Street scandal, which was the first mass arrest of gay men in this country and in the early 19th century. So I just knew that story, and I'd written two books about quite privileged people, and I thought, well, I don't want to do that again. I was quite interested in writing something about the sort of milieu of working-class radicalism, political radicalism in the early 19th century, which is a obviously a specific thing to be interested in. So it all just sort of came together, really. That also just That's often how my books come together, is there's this glob of ideas I want to do, and then suddenly I alight on a, something to focus on. Mm. I mean, the whole idea of radicalism, that it's about radicalism, really. Yeah. What he practices 
is radical love. He just wants everybody to love each other. But he's asked at one point by Ned, and we'll get on to Ned in a moment, who is radical and what makes them so? What is demanded of a radical when radicals spend most of their time demanding things? Is a person radical simply because they say they are? Or is it because of their actions and behaviours? What is the answer to that? Yeah, I mean, I think that is the central philosophical question of the book. Again, in the world of Twitter, are we radical just because we say we are? You know, is that so? Is it enough just to say you're radical? Is it enough to just to say, and you can shift that? I mean, I, I am interested in political radicalism, but you can shift that out into just being a good person. That's the central question of Twitter in a way, or moral question you could pose Twitter is like, are you a good person just because you say you are? And I think Twitter is full of people who say they're good people and have friends and followers who agree with them, but does their behavior? bear that out. Mm. And so I think really that's centrally what I'm interested in in this book and that's what this journey of John Church is really, I think. Yeah. All right. so John Church, he's found wandering the streets when he's a small child and he's an orphan now. I mean, we don't know, nobody knows where he came from. Yeah, he's found two years old. This part is all true and again, I have to thank Richter Norton and his research for this. Uh, He's found at two years old in the streets of London wandering on his own, outside a church, shouting a word to himself which sounds like John. This is all true. And they call him, oh, you're John Church, and cart him off to the Founding Hospital, which is on Coram Fields, for those who know Bloomsbury London. And that's how it starts. And he's just one of London's abandoned children, which there were an absolute army of abandoned children at this time. Mm, And he keeps saying, I know that I am nothing. I'm nothing, but I will be something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think for me, that's coming from South Wales. I'm from a family background or certainly a community background, which is based in sort of left-wing political radicalism in which people believed in radicalism and education as a form of self-transformation, you know, out of poverty or even not even out of poverty, but just for personal dignity. That's really informs that, that thing of he knows he can change himself or transform himself into something other than he started out as. Mm. So tell us more of, of the real story, of the bones of the story on, on which you create your imagined fiction. Yeah, for, for this specific book. My process really is just to read as much as I can Although I'm pretty strategic with it. I do think in sort of scenes and characters. I don't do endless research. But I just build up this research of what of things that were going on at the time. So the things I was really interested in was, apart from the main story, which is the Veer Street scandal and also John Church's own journey and story, I was quite interested in things like black radicalism, black abolitionism, which becomes a part of the book. And again, was based in a book I read many years ago by called Staying Power by Peter Fryer. There's a great thing, and I just want to stop you there because you, you're so interesting about abolitionism. And a couple of characters say this, how English people in the future will insist that Africans stop talking about slavery. We will say, you used to make us sit behind a curtain at your dinners, and they will say, stop lying. You're free now. Why can't you be happy? We're seeing that. Yes, definitely. I think one of the strange things is, I mean, it's not my role to speak. I'm not black, so it's not my role to speak for black people. But I think for all sorts of minorities, there's a real danger. I see this a lot for gay men at the moment. There's a real danger in everyone going, well, we don't mind anymore. It's fine now. Everything's fine now. And A... There's a danger in that I can I see this with young people who read my books who sometimes find them a bit distressing, kind of or a bit sort of complex, is there's a real danger in forgetting what happened in the past because as we can tell with America, you know, sort of don't say gay laws and anti-drag stuff, the bad stuff can come back for a start. But also I think it's important for people to be able to talk about what was traumatic about it as well. You know, I think you see that a lot. I think so lots of black people would see that. Is that kind of that silencing of of just discussing what happened in the past. Mm. Yeah, I do get why people 
people themselves don't feel that they're racist or don't feel they're homophobic. And so it's like, so I don't want to talk about it. I know it's uncomfortable to talk about it, that sort of thing. But yeah, I, I think you very much, that was a really central, again, another big point I wanted to make in the book in as much as one wants to make point is that that thing of there's a danger in forgetting the past. Mm. So as you say, the Veer Street scandal was, mm. was really at the centre. Tell us more about that. So the Veer Street scandal was a huge media, really, story of the 19th century. Again, at a time where, for the first time, a million people are living in one space called London, and there are newspapers and there are mass printing and pamphlets and whatever. It was the first mass arrest of gay men in this country at a period where the legal position of gay men was deteriorating quickly, which seems odd to us, right, that at one point it wasn't a problem and then it became a problem. So it's written at the end of 20 years of war, of the Napoleonic Wars, a period of rocketing prices, which when I started writing this book was not (laughs) a thing, you know, and I kind of, as I came. And so I think what you see in times like that is societies often want somebody to blame or maybe perhaps politicians want somebody to blame, you know. And so suddenly gay men who had been tolerated as probably an ambitious word, but sort of hadn't been under so much scrutiny, certainly, were being arrested in large number in London in the 19th century. The Veer Street scandal was based on what was called a Molly House, which is sort of like a proto-gay bar, really. Very, very secret, very, very whispering. And you found out through someone who found out through someone. But London was full of these places and they would get raided occasionally. By the early 19th century, the raiding and exposure of Molly Houses had become a journalistic obsession and it became a much bigger thing. And so when the Veer Street scandal, the Molly House on Veer Street was raided, which is just on the fringe of Covent Garden today. Veer Street itself doesn't exist anymore. It was just a huge story. And during the course of the arrests and the prosecutions that followed, uh, what poured petrol all over the story and lit it was it became known that someone had been marrying men at the Molly House, which was just an absolute moral affront to people. But it was also journalistic gold to turn this story from one thing into another. I mean, it was one of the biggest sort of media events of the early 19th century. And tell us about what happened to these men who were arrested, because you have, I mean, you start the book with this absolutely horrific description, because sometimes they were in fact hanged and and they were, the crowds were allowed to attack them. Just tell us a little bit more about that. And that, I hope, just serves as much as a a trigger warning to listeners, (laughs) but it is quite horrific. (laughs) Yeah, it's not good. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, so... The book opens with the hanging, a real event, uh, the hanging of somebody who was connected to the Molly House scene, who is known by the main characters. One of the famous things, which I just has probably shows the kind of atmosphere of the time, is he was hanged outside Newgate Prison on what's now the Old Bailey. He was hanged with two rapists, two heterosexual male rapists, and the rapists did not want to stand with him because they felt that they were morally superior to him. And he was just arrested and and hanged. The other punishment was to be, certainly to be imprisoned, but also to be put in the in the stocks, in the pillory, and you would be taken down to usually the Haymarket in what's now the West End, and you'd, you'd actually be taken from prison and paraded through the streets of London. There was so much violence that shops closed, but also boarded up their windows for the day because they knew there was going to be so much stuff thrown. And then you were taken through the streets down, I guess, the Strand, which would have been 
even more important streets, so the Fleet Street and Strand, which were really major thoroughfares of the time, in a much, much smaller London than today. And eventually you were taken to usually somewhere like the Haymarket, and you were display, what was called displayed for several hours whilst the crowd beat you, basically. And people often died, but sometimes the what was called the patrol, which is, again, the antecedent of the police, would intervene sometimes. One of the fascinating things was at the time, and again, this is an interesting resonance today, was that gay men were particularly targeted at the time because they were regarded as a danger to women. (laughs) Which, you know, if you think about where we are now, it's sort of really interesting to think of queer people in a world filled where most, almost all sexual violence is committed by heterosexual men, a world which is obsessing about queer people performing sexual violence or social violence on women is an interesting place to be, right? It and so, really is. And I mean, it makes me wonder about society. But then when you think about, again, bringing it back to Twitter, perhaps not so much, when you've got so many people who want to vent their spleen, who want to show their hatred against somebody who's never actually harmed them personally, yeah. who they don't know, yeah. they're going to take the time out to find their rotten vegetables. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, could, you, you, you could literally buy dung. You could, there was somebody selling dung for you to throw. But I mean, what does that tell us about a society that wants to do that? And then I suppose I ask my my own question by saying, well, look at Twitter. It's the same. Yeah. Twitter is a great example. I read something recently, which was on the subreddit Ask Historians. Anyone who's interested in history, I would recommend you go to the subreddit Ask Historians because you'll probably never leave. (laughs) (laughs) And there was a guy, and it's, it's a subreddit which allows people to ask academic historians questions. And the guy asked about, what is the image of this people going to like an execution of a heretic or murder of a Jew or whatever in public? What's that person getting out of that? Mm. Is it just an entertaining day out as it's shown in Hollywood films or whatever? And the historian said, no, it brings you closer to God to do that. And so you then see it as a moral function. You're performing a moral duty in which you appear as the good person. Is that not Twitter? Exactly. I think that function remains very similar. And I mean, you do talk about duty because there's a duty that gay men of the time, back then, 1809, 1810, uh, performed, which was to go and be seen by the person who was about to be hung or who was being pilloried. You had to be there and stand there so that they could see. It was a form of support, really, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, I've I've sort of developed that perhaps more than it was. But one of the important things was once you were convicted of homosexuality, your family would abandon you. That's not just a moral decision by the family. There's actually a reference to the person who was hanged. There were references to people's wives. Very often these guys were married who would come to the executions and themselves be attacked for their moral failure. Mm. You know, and it's like kind of the attitude being if they'd only been better wives, their husbands wouldn't be being hanged for homosexuality. There's a love story at yeah. the heart of this. It really is a very passionate, very tender, very real love story. Yeah. Now, now that, I presume, was fictionalised. Yes, yes. So in the history of behind the book, John Church writes letters to a young man called Ned, And these were later published in the press as part of the campaign against John Church. And we know nothing else about Ned, Uh, not, not a single thing. We just know that he received these letters and they were published in the press. And so really, I reimagine who Ned was and his role in, in John Church's life. And John Church sends pretty intense letters to this to this young man. So that was what the origin of that was. And you make him a, a black man so you can talk about enslaved people and, and so on. Yeah. Now, we come to John Church himself, or at least your version of him. Yeah. He is 
the ultimate unreliable narrator. (laughs) (laughs) I love how he addresses his readers all of the time. He'll say, oh, and I'm just going to tell you this, or no, I never did this, or he kind of breaks that fourth wall often. Yeah. But he's not always truthful. No. (laughs) Somebody once said to me, life with John is a wild ride. (laughs) And it's true. He's very charming. He's very vulnerable. We want to like him and want to love him. And he kind of lets us down a lot. My editor said, we realise that he's sort of grooming us, you know, that kind of he tells the version that he wants us to believe. And time and again... We catch him, we the reader catch him in a lie. And then he kind of goes, oh, well, you know, I've just told, it's only a small lie. (laughs) (laughs) I won't do it again. I won't do it again. (laughs) You know me, I'm I'm good really. So, yeah. It's a wonderful book. I would really highly recommend it. And it's beautifully, beautifully written. Thank you. And we get such a sense of being, I mean, it really is quite, and I must point this out to readers, it is quite traumatic in places. Yeah, yeah. I mean, is that the kind of feedback you've been getting? Yeah, I get lots of there should have been trigger warnings with this. It's not really, it's, I I want it to be an honest book and I want people to see what happened and the kind of emotional world people, not specifically gay men, anybody who's living under oppression lives in the fear they live in, but also that you then just have to keep on living your life. There's a scene after the main body of arrests and punishments where John encounters someone who's been arrested there's a message in that scene of, you know, you have to go on living. If you if you still live, you have to go on living. And I think really for gay men who lived in that period in the 19th, 20th centuries, who lived under such oppression and control, you still had the impulses to be who you are. And so I wanted to sort of capture that a bit. Well, you've done it excellently. Thank you, Neil. Thank you so much. Radical Love is by Neil Blackmore. It's published by Hutchinson Heinemann and it's out now. <laughs> You've been listening to Meet the Writers, thanks to the production team of Townsend Howard and Sam Impey. And you can download this show and previous episodes from our website or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.